Well, this morning, I have three choices on my scripture reading, and I am honestly a little undecided still. Uh, I think we're going to go to the book of James, chapter 2, there I just made this. I was going to read the whole book of Jude, because it's been so long, just to get you a handle on the chapter that we're actually studying. But let's go to James, chapter 2, and we'll begin reading in verse 14 as a collateral passage to our verse today in the, in the book of Jude. James chapter 2, beginning verse 14, I'll read to the end of the chapter, and I will be doing so out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. James chapter 2, verse 14. God's Word declares, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. Oh, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by faith, works faith was made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, then, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Well, we continue our study in Jude, and we are really in the middle of verse 4. I want to read up to that point with some emphasis for us just as review. Rather than trying to review all that we have studied thus far, I just want to really just read very deliberately the four verses, three and a half that we have studied, and into the last half of verse 4 that we want to work on this morning. Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go Lord in prayer as we prepare to go into his word. Lord God, we do thank you for your word before us and its power and strength, its truth, its authority. And Lord, our minds and hearts really aren't up to it without your help. And so we plead that your spirit would work in us to understand certainly, but also to sense the authority and to recognize it to transform us. 
truly believe, not with our mouth confessing it only, but with our heart believing it to the transformation of our lives to obeying it. And again, Lord, our pride will keep us from this and we offer it up to you as a sacrifice today, giving it up, surrendering. You might truly work in us to your praise and glory and for the strengthening encouragement of your family. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come into the meat of Jude, and we discover that this is going to be tough, because we find out right away that while the author, Jude, really wanted to talk about all the great things we have in salvation, there's a problem, and that is, is that in the midst of a church that should be filled with the truth and with all that encompasses it, we have creeping in, and we talked about creepers on Mother's Day, remember? Uh, those that crept in unnoticed, that distorted and destroyed this very salvation. And they destroy it and distort, they begin by distorting it and then destroying it from within. They do it within our doctrine, and we're going to look at how it does. And some of the doctrines are so precious that just hearing the words, we have positive thoughts about the person sharing it. One of those words we're going to talk about here is grace, because that's what's used here of Jude. And we hear, well, grace, grace, grace. If anyone, someone's teaching grace, that they must obviously be someone I want to listen to. But we find that even in this very pleasant doctrine of grace, there can come great trouble. That grace has to be tempered. It is, has to be modeled after God's word and its truth, and it can't just go wherever we want it to go to meet our own sensitivities. Because I want it to feel good about myself, and so I want to Define the grace of God in terms that I enjoy and I like. For therein is error and destruction of the church. Perhaps not physically on earth. There are probably many churches that are abusing grace that are very full. But when I talk about the destruction of the church, I'm talking about, first of all, their capacity to bring people to the truth of the gospel. And secondly, to have God's pleasure upon them, to have God view them um, in that condition we all look forward to that we sang about that I want to hear well done. When I arrive and see his face, I want to hear those words. Well, what does that require of us? That we take even the most pleasant doctrines and we grasp them with such biblical precision that we do not let anyone abuse them to the detriment of our Christian walk. And so, yes, we're going to be talking about a wonderful area of Christianity, but we find that we have to come at it in Jude from the negative side. I would love, and Jude, I'm sure, would love to just say, let's talk about the grace of God and, and the expansiveness and the, and the incomprehensibility that God, would, who is the righteous judge, would extend to us the, the marvels of his gifts. Because grace is when God gives you things you don't deserve. And pretty much that's a really long list. Beginning with the breath you just took. So when we talk about the grace of God, we, are gonna, we could divide this up and we can do extensive study. People have written entire books and series. I could preach for weeks, months on it easily. And really just scratch the surface. We talk about common grace, the grace of God that, that is given to all men, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and we recognize that this is a gift of God, and God allows them to go through their days to, to have rest, to have clothing, to have uh, their crops grow, and to have food, and, and to be secure in their homes, and, and, and to have children, and have loving relationships. All of that is is the grace of God to all mankind. And we call that common grace, shared by everyone. 
And then there's the salvific grace of God that we look at in terms of coming to Christ. And of course, that's what the Bible focuses on. It doesn't ignore common grace. It, it talks about it frequently. But its focal point is salvific grace. What is the grace that saves us? This gift of God that brings salvation, that has appeared to all men. And we're going to talk about what it teaches us. And so this is a wonderful doctrine. And it is sad. It is um, disturbing that an author like Jude and many other authors in Scripture have to come to the doctrine of grace from a negative standpoint. And in fact, that's not uncommon in Scripture to have to do that. Why do we have to do that? Because of ungodly men creeping in unnoticed, using special words like grace, and we think, oh, I want to bask in the grace of God, and then realize that we've just been sent down a road that is not pleasing to God. And so we come to it from that same perspective this morning. They have turned the grace of God, it says. You have to turn the grace of our God into something else. You say, well, how do you turn grace into something bad? Uh, well, we're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, the word used here is it turns the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there, these are the, the, the two prongs of what these ungodly men have done, and these are not unrelated. They all go back to that core, and when you turn grace, you're going to produce lewdness, and you're going to deny Christ. How can I deny Christ by lewdness? By turning, by just focusing on grace, because we tend to define grace to our benefit, which means that I can live however I want and God will keep forgiving me. And that's the problem. That's how they turn grace into lewdness. Go live however you want. You're no longer under the law, and therefore you have no parameters for your life. And that's what they want us to believe. And in fact, we're going to look at one man that was accused of that. One biblical author that was accused of having that kind of doctrine. And maybe in the back of Jude's mind, and maybe in James's mind, maybe they kind of thought of the Apostle Paul that way a little bit. Uh, just if they had heard his, his messages or rumors of what he was teaching from Judaizers who loved the law, they might come to that idea. And in fact, when we go to Romans, this is one of the things that Paul, in his letter to Romans, which are people he hadn't met, he said, uh, you may have heard that I teach this, but let me clarify. So let's go and make sure that we don't go too far the other way. So we don't want to take everyone who teaches grace and say they're leading us to sin, and nor do we want to go so far into grace to be led into sin. So we want to be balanced. And Paul gives us a great description of that. So let's look there first. Let's look at um, uh, Romans chapter 3. Because Paul was one of those guys that preached grace, 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 grace. Look, I got something else from Israel. Okay. Romans chapter 3 is all about sin. And you recognize the verses towards the end of this chapter of all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We recognize those verses toward the end. But really, Romans chapter 3 is Paul defending his position on don't think that because I teach grace and freedom from the law that that gives you permission to do whatever you please. And let's pick it up. And let's just read verse 1. For what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God? For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Uh, maybe in some of your Bibles you're going to have God forbid quite often. This is, this is the section of Scripture that has certainly not and God forbid emphatically repeated, which means definitely this is not what I'm teaching. If this is what you get an idea of, dismiss it from your mind, and if anyone promotes that, dismiss them from your presence. 
Here we go. So when you hear, certainly not, or God forbid, those two phrases with exclamation points um, after them, get that in your mind. I shouldn't be listening. I shouldn't be thinking that line of thought. Here we go. Will their unbelief, in verse 3, make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. Stop thinking like that. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So, Paul was accused, he says. I have been accused. I have been slandered. This is such a strong accusation that he has to defend himself to people he's never met. And say, you may have heard I teach this, but just because I teach freedom from the law does not mean I give you freedom to sin. I never teach that. God forbid that I teach that. I certainly don't teach that. And yes, our sin, the law teaches us about sin so that we can recognize that we don't measure up to the righteousness of God. The law exposes sin. And so when I give you a law and you break the law, when you give your children rules and they break the rules, what do you know about your children? Are they little angels? No, they're lost. They're children of darkness. Their father is the devil. Why? Because we have a nature that is prone to sin. We all need a savior. Even the little ones need Jesus. And their disobedience proves that. So the law is there to point out sin. And Paul goes into a great detail and length to explain this relationship between the righteousness of God, the unrighteousness of men, and the law. The law's purpose is to put a spotlight on those two things, that God is holy, and you are not. And when the law gets you to recognize that you aren't holy, and God is, then God is glorified because now you're ready to humble yourself. Not now you're ready to get the grace of God and go do whatever you want. And so Paul wants to address this, and he does. And you could go through all of chapter 3, we could study it. We could go to chapter 6, where he extends this whole idea. Uh, let's just, uh, just for the fun of, not fun, but just for the pleasure of, it is pleasurable to hear God's word, I hope, to you. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Emphatically. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as you were, were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. We studied that a few weeks ago. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves 
to God, as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace. So, verse 14, you are not under law, but you are under grace. What did Paul mean by that? Well, he just explained to you what he meant by that. And that is that the law condemned you because it showed you you were a sinner and needed to be saved. And all I have to do is go through the Ten Commandments and I can sit down with each one of you and go through, okay, let's just see how quick we can just break every one of these. And it doesn't even matter how. Let's see here. Well, it might matter for the little infant over there, but uh, even the youngest among you, I can very quickly do that. And if you have any problems, your parent will help. The law was there to identify our sin. It had a purpose, and that purpose was good. We need to know we are lost. Because now we can look for help. We can ask directions. You get lost in a city? um, There was only one time in this three weeks traveling around Israel and Greece that I really genuinely felt lost. I was like, they just took me into three circles and I don't know what direction I am. And uh, that was in Athens. And um, I'm very good with directions. It's really hard to get me lost, but that time I was lost. And so you just say, I'm lost. Um, Where are we? (laughs) Where am I? Help! I'm lost. You see, the law tells you you're lost. It tells you you're a sinner. You need help. And it directs you. And so it is a good thing to identify that you're in trouble and you need help. And Paul says that the law was good, but Christ completed the law. The law itself doesn't save you. Trying to keep the law to please God will never work because you'll never be able to do it perfectly. Did you know what Mr. Roberts said in Sunday school this morning? Before the battery went out and I could still hear him, do you know what he said this morning? I was aghast. He said, your pastor is just like you and sins. Can you believe he would say something like that? In Sunday school. He does. So keep praying for your pastor too. And I keep praying for you that God doesn't lead you into sin. And there's a reason Jesus in his model prayer said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We need that prayer to walk in righteousness. So we are all sinners. The law exposes that. But I can't secure a place in heaven by trying to be a good person and keep the law. It can't do that. It is good in what it does do, but it is inadequate in trying to make it do more than it was doing. That was the Jews' problem. They thought keeping the law was the way to get access to God. They didn't understand that it was the sacrifices that were a picture of a once-for-all sacrifice to come. That was where your access to heaven was, was the faith in that future one for them, for us, faith in the historical one, Jesus, and his death, burial, and resurrection that we have access. And so the law has its limits. And Paul wants to go through that. And so this is Paul. He was accused of being one of those that taught too much grace. But boy, did he teach grace. He taught grace, 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 but in its right and proper domain. It is not that you are now free to sin however you want because every time I sin, God forgives, gives, forgives me and it just adds to the power of the blood. That's exactly what people were teaching. So therefore I should go out and sin more and then there's more to be forgiven and then the blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful. Yeah, it has a little rationality to it. It kind of traces back. But then you go, wait a minute. God forbid that be our thinking, that be our purpose in approaching his grace. But people come in and do that, and I see it all the time. I I encountered it multiple times on this trip. We were in a very ecumenical group of people from all over. We'll talk a lot more about that tonight. And so 
this trip, I'm going to talk tonight about three things that happened to me. I, I was, I'm not going to tell you. You have to come. Anyway, I was just getting ready to give you the whole evening message. I don't have to come, so I'm not going to do that. Anyway, one of those things was dealing with what people are believing and spouting off. And the words sound good because they're talking about grace and God and mercy. And, but when you understand what they are concluding is, I can believe and do whatever I want and God must accept me because he has love, grace, and mercy. I set the terms. That's what they're saying. And they're using God's grace as the excuse for them setting the terms to God of their salvation. So yes, it has crept in, and they aren't even aware of it, many of them. It is so deeply seated in their spiritual psyche that to try to draw them out of it is, is more than I'm capable of in one conversation. All you can do is keep taking them to God's Word, and 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 they will still conclude, oh, but I like so-and-so what they said. Why don't you like what God said? Because it means I have to live different. Yeah, and that's Jude's whole point. You see, people have taken the grace of God and turned it into something it isn't and never was and never will be. They have turned it from being a wonderful thing of God instilling in us the righteousness of Christ so that we can live righteously and godly in this present world as we look for the coming of our Lord. This is what the grace of God has done. He has given you a gift. If you have received him as your Savior, he's not only just forgiven your sins, he's also given you a gift of being a righteous person and capable now of saying no to any sin, anytime, anywhere. Do you realize that? You have the power. If you're a believer here, you have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to any sin, anywhere, anytime. None of it has that authority over you. And that's why Paul says, I put my body into subjection. I beat it down. I have the power to do that. Not because I'm a stubborn, strong-willed person, because the grace of God has given this to me by his Holy Spirit. And so we have Paul over here saying grace, and we conclude salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and, and the Reformation was built upon that declaration. And then we got that character over there in the book of James that says exactly the opposite. You're not saved by faith alone, are you nuts? Okay, I'm totally confused now. Good. Because now you're getting close to where you need to be in the balance point. You see, some took grace and turned it into lewdness. And some took the law and turned it into something it wasn't intended to be. And many have accused James of this very thing. And so I'm trying to hit both extremes here. Paul was falsely accused in his day and by many authors today of saying you can sin however you want, even though he specifically wrote, God forbid, certainly not. I never teach that. It never implies that. Um, you are free from the law, not free from righteousness. Paul distinguished between those. The law and righteousness are two different things. The law was a complete in Christ. Righteousness is something you receive that is above the law. It's beyond the law. It is, it is, the law can't touch it. The law says don't murder. Jesus says don't hate. And you've heard me express that many, many times. So that's the one extreme. The other extreme of this is the people that are going to react to Jude so strongly. Well, if grace can make, if grace the wrong teaching of grace helps me, convinces me that I can keep sinning and it doesn't help me in my, in my battle for the 
Christian walk, then I'm going to go this other direction. And the other direction has the same problems. And so James wants to clarify this end. So let's go to James chapter 2, which we read earlier. James chapter 2. We read verse 14 and following. It's here somewhere. There we go. And again, his statement is, can you have faith without works? Now, the works is not the law. Please notice that. James is not saying you have to keep the law. He is rather saying your faith is demonstrable. It is known to others. It is, it is at work when it is doing something, when you are exercising it. You can sit here and say you have faith and say you have faith and say you have faith and be lost and going to hell. And that's the other twisted side of twisted grace. Not only does it lead you to sin more, it leads you to have false faith. Because you think and it's very easy to get caught up in, well, I'm a good person. I'm kind. I try to be loving. I try to be a good husband, good wife, good worker, good citizen, good, you know, whatever. I try to smile at people. I try to be pleasant. I don't steal from anybody, from the government. I, I just, and we become convinced that we don't really need Jesus. Even when we use, and we have religion, and I go to church. We do remember what Jesus said there in, back in Matthew 5. Many will come, you've heard me quote it a thousand times, right? Help me out. Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? And Jesus' response is, that day I'll, Say to them, depart from me, I never, never knew you. Any of you cast out a demon lately? Any of you prophesied lately? These guys have some pretty high credentials, but they're not God's children. Jesus doesn't know them. And this is the other side of perverting grace is you end up doing all this religious activity without a relationship with God. Because you've brought God into your definition of what of his, the parameters he has to be under, of love and mercy, which means he can't ever condemn you no matter how much you sin, no matter how selfish you are, no matter how wicked you are, he's always, he always going to forgive me. And then it convinces you through your religious activity that you're okay with God because you're a nice person most of the time. And when you're not, God forgiven you anyway, so you're good there. And James says, what? Are you kidding me? You call that faith? You claim by your mouth to have faith in God, and you have nothing in your life to prove it. And so he, he just starts blasting into people and says... If you have faith and don't have works, can faith save him? Can that kind of faith, can workless faith save you? And his conclusion is that you are justified by faith, by works-filled faith. He's not saying that you need to have works to be saved. So don't think the works comes first, but rather faith is demonstrated by their works. Abraham believed God. When did he believe God? Do you, remember, do you know the context of that declaration? Abraham believed God and has credited him for righteousness. What? Did he just sit down and say, I believe in God? When was it given to him? Come on, class, help me out. Yeah. He walked up a mountain with his son and a pile of wood and a knife, ready to cut his son open and burn him on an altar because God told him to. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. 
Was that the first step of obedience that Abraham had? No. Abraham obeyed God when God says, get out of Ur and go to the land I show you. And, and he does. And he leaves his father and his household and, and all the idolatry that's there. And he goes and does that. And you might say, well, that was a lot of faith. It wasn't enough. He hadn't been declared righteous yet. God's going to test his faith a little bit. And he goes in the land of Canaan and all the circumstances there. And, and then, um, well, what about um, you know, going down to Egypt and, and the sacrifices, the covenant? Oh, Abraham's got lots of faith. Hasn't been declared righteous yet. Abraham entertains some guests, pleads the case for Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, if you find 50, 40, 20, 10, if you find 10 righteous, will you deliver them? I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So if there's 10 righteous there, I'll save them. Abraham must have been a man of faith. Hadn't been declared righteous yet. Take your son, your only son, climb that mountain, sacrifice him to me. And Abraham did that. And James says that's when he was declared righteous because now that faith was costing him the, most, the dearest thing to him. And God was saying, you're going to have to choose, Abraham, between your son and me. Because it seems to me your son is getting more precious in your sight than me. Let's just find out which one it is. Now God stopped Abraham in the act. I mean, Abraham was like this. God knew he was going to go through with it. God held him back. Then provided another sacrifice in Isaac's place. Wonderful picture of Christ. And James' statement is, you can sit around and claim the grace of God and make these statements with your mouth, but where's the proof in your life? When it comes down to making choices between God or that, God or him, God or her, God or this, and you have to know that the Bible is full of expectations explanation of this and examples of this um, that the life of true faith is a life full of works of righteousness it's full of it not to earn our way but because we're on our way and so James says don't you see you want to be a friend of God, you want to be counted righteous like Abraham, then you're going to be doing it by your works. What about Rahab? Did she just sit in Jericho and say, I believe in God, I believe in God. It's silly, but I believe. It's silly, but I believe. You know, that's Miracle on 34th Street version of faith. It's silly, but I believe. It's silly, but I believe. And we kind of think that that's what it means to confess Christ, and it's not. It's silly, but I believe. By the way, James is one that says, you know, the demons believe in Jesus, and they're afraid of him. They're shaking their boots at his name. So, here we go. It's silly, but I believe isn't real faith. Real faith is saying, I believe enough. Then God gives me a choice, I will choose God over my family, over my work, over my everything. God comes first last and everything in between and it fills up my life it defines how I go to work it defines my relationship with everyone on earth with my church family with the lost with my immediate family it's defined by the righteousness of Christ and that's why Jesus says if you love father mother more than me you're not worthy of me why because that's faith. So Rahab had to make a choice, didn't she? She didn't just sit in Jericho and say, I'm silly, but I believe. 
No, she took great risk of hiding the spies in her house, redirecting, I was going to say lying, <laughs> lying to, no, they left, I think they're already that direction, and misleading the whole uh, posse that's after them, lets them down out of that, and I want you to understand, she is turning her back on her own people. Her faith was tested before it hardly started. She was a woman of faith. That night, she was accounted for as righteous. Because she had made a decision. Jericho, my family, my society, everything I'm used to, the walls, all the things that are secure, all the things the world trusts in, all this... Or those crazy Israelites out there walk around the desert. Granted, they just crossed the Red sea, or the Jordan River on dry ground. But she says, "I'm gonna. I'm willing to risk it all. I'm. I'll leave it all because I want to follow the God of Israel." Rahab demonstrated that she believed in her actions, and so we have. These that come in, and they want to say grace gives you permission to do whatever you want. Grace gives you permission to uh, just say your faith, live however you like, and no one should judge you. And that's what they're teaching about the grace of God in too many churches today. And I have seen it, because I spent the last few weeks with people who aren't part of this church. Not that we're the only church that teaches it, by the way. There are a lot of good people on tour, too, that we had sweet fellowship with. But I could see their faith in their living, in their speech, in their countenance. They didn't just talk it, they lived it. And so we come to understand that, yes, we are the recipients of wondrous gifts of God. And we should sing about them. We should marvel at them. We should teach about them. We should enjoy them. But we should understand what they are not. They are not permission to live how you please and God is over a barrel and has to forgive you if you confess it. No. I want to take you to one other passage of our Lord No, I'm not. I'm going to take you to Romans 10. Let's go to Romans 10. I'll save that other passage for another. Romans 10. This is, I think, disturbingly describes most of the Christian community I've encountered recently. Verse 1, brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel and insert God's people is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Oh, that we would be not ignorant that being recipients of God's grace means that we are gifted with righteousness of God. And we should walk like it. And don't sit here on Sunday and say you're a believer and go out and walk in the, <laughs> as the world, as the flesh, as the evil one, and say you have faith. Um, and just because you go in and confess sin does not mean it is forgiven. The righteousness of God has a demand, and that demand is that we have a genuine relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that is so evident that it cannot be missed by anyone. They look at you and know you are different. 
when we try to blend in, get along, and try to <laughs> sneak the gospel in, we do a disservice to Christ. And that's why the last part of this verse says, not only in Jude, not only are they leading you to sin more, they're leading you to deny God. And this Romans 10 tells you how you're denying God because you are denying his righteousness. And I had to defend the last day of our tour, I had to defend the righteousness of God. I had to defend the righteousness of God on a Christian tour. You see, once we have grace that lets us live however we want and there's no standard of righteousness that we are called to, one that, by the way, is above the law, then we are denying Christ. Because part of your salvation is receiving God's grace, gifts given, right? His gift to you is his righteousness. It is perhaps the greatest gift he gives you through the power of the resurrection is his righteousness. And when you go out and live how you please, thinking that you can walk into a prayer booth or a confessional or a church or your closet and ask forgiveness with every intention of going out there and living the same way next week, you do not have the righteousness of Christ in you. It cannot be. You're denying him. For true faith calls us to righteous living, to a evidence in our life that there is a difference God has, make, has made in my life. And so we find that not only are you going to sin more if you twist grace, but they also want you to ultimately deny Christ, even as you're using his name, Lord, Lord, even as you're doing things in the ministry for his namesake and prophesying and healing and casting out demons and, and doing whatever, and you're doing all this thing in the name of Jesus, preaching sermons, having Sunday school classes, whatever, in the name of Jesus we're doing all of this. Um, but you do not have righteousness going on. Then your faith is empty. And James says your faith is dead. And you end up denying Christ, which is what was Jude's concern for his people, is that you're denying the only Lord God, the righteousness of God that we saw there in Romans 10, 3, and you're denying the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not give you a spirit to sin more, and just be a forgiven person. He gave you his righteousness that you can live godly in this present world. Not just in some future time, oh, well, I know we'll all be better then. No, today, you can say no to any sin, anywhere, anytime. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit of God within you, the power of His righteousness at work in you. We can deny ourselves, tape up our cross, and with joy follow Jesus every day. Will we do it perfectly? No. Do we stop trying doing it perfectly? No. <laughs> Don't ever, ever, ever stop being sanctified, being the called, being the completed ones. Live your faith that others may see the righteousness of God in you and turn to him. Don't twist grace into letting you sin more and believe whatever you want and God is accepting all of us. This is a lie from the evil one, from ungodly men who are perverting the truth. And it is rampant all around us. And so we are called to be righteous, for he is righteous. And the last passage I would like you to read in closing is in Hebrews 10.
a warning. We're coming at grace from the negative side because of the false teachers that have penetrated the church, have now redefined grace in too many Christian circles, so I want to end with a warning shot. I want to encourage you to live righteously because it's a wonderful gift of God, but you also need to walk out just a little fearful. You ready? For if we sin willfully, verse 26 of Hebrews 10, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Wow. I don't think God ever gave you permission to sin at will. Rather, he has given you the power to obey. If we'll surrender ourselves to him, receive his righteousness, we have the power. Don't sin willfully now that you know the truth. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for your word, and for this power of your spirit in us. We thank you for your righteousness that you fulfilled the law on our behalf because there's no way we could have ever done it. That you have shared that righteousness with us is something we just don't appreciate enough. And I don't know if we even can until we're in your presence. But Lord, we want to marvel on it, dwell on it, be astonished by it all that you have given us of your righteousness, that we are looked upon by heavenly eyes as saints, holy ones, because of Christ. Lord, we've not walked as you've called us to walk. We have not striven to be holy as you are holy. We've not lived up to our name, little Christ. Forgive us. Even as you've empowered us to say no, to sin and to walk in righteousness, to meditate on what is good, just, holy, true, pure, and above reproach and excellent. Lord, by your spirit convict us and encourage us and comfort us press on in this world in righteousness and godliness that the world may see it and tremble at a God that would make such a difference in the life of a weak, frail human. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.